Mr. Dr. Steele, welcome. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on. It's the, it's the eighth. It's a crazy day. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there, buddy. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's been a while since I even posted on this podcast, but um, I just want to give a little background for this. Platform is called uh, the platform with Peter Johnston, but I just try to bring on people who've got like really interesting perspectives about relevant stuff that's happening in the world. And you are one of my favorite professors and you taught me American foreign policy and it was awesome. And um, that's how I know you, right? Just, just to give the audience a little bit. So go ahead and like introduce yourself, like where you're from. Tell us about your quixotic love of the Chicago Bears, all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, man. And, and thanks for the kind words and the feelings mutual. You, you are, uh, continue to be one of my favorite students. Um, so I'm, I'm originally from Iowa. I grew up in Iowa uh, in the 70s and 80s and a little bit in the 90s. Uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa area is where I'm from. Got my PhD from the University of Iowa. Uh, focused on international relations as a subfield of um, uh, political science, which is what my PhD is in. I was at the University of Kansas for eight years as an assistant and associate professor, and I moved here in 2013. So I've been here since 2013 in Utah and Salt Lake City, never been happier. I mean, in terms of life happiness, uh, it's also because my life stage is is great. I have two kids, uh, one's a teenager. Uh, in uh, sophomore high school at Judge Memorial uh, here in Salt Lake City. And uh, my son is uh, 11 in sixth grade uh, at a uh, school in um, Davis County, actually. Uh, we drive him over there. He's in a, a school uh, there as well. And um, I am currently the department chair. I'm also the Francis D. Warmuth presidential chair, which is an endowed chair uh, position. And I focus on international relations international ethics international security and u.s foreign policy in my research uh aside from me just like knowing you as a really good professor with interesting takes on things is that i reached out to you is because i saw some of your tweets i found this one um and i i put it on my instagram and it says this is not just happening in dc and you're referring to you know, I'm assuming like the attempted coup and the storming of the Capitol. Uh, it's happening at state houses around the country, including here in Salt Lake City. And you retweeted uh, something from Taylor Stevens. Is she from the Salt Lake Tribune? She is. She was a reporter at the Salt uh, at the uh, State House, uh, the Utah State House, Wednesday when the Trump protests were going on there as well. So yeah, she's a she's a reporter uh, that covers those types of things. It looks like she got a picture of what was going on there. And the only the, the tweet I want to talk like I just want to get, get you going on is this one. You said for two months, Trump caravans have been in SLC with flags and honking through neighborhoods, albeit sporadically. My daughter went out to a mall today after school and I told her, don't engage with them if you see them. Her. But you uh, why do you get to yell? Why do they get to yell at us? And you said, just don't. OK. And I could kind of hear your voice coming out there. But um there's a lot there you know you've got this perspective as a dad and as a political scientist could you just like unpack a little of that for us like your feelings as all this is happening yeah um yeah and and when i uh if i'm going on too long or whatever just kind of give me the uh cut it you know cut it short uh, no go off or whatever but um 
I mean, you know, th this was, as you know, I mean, I've, I've shared uh, my um, kind of perspective in the different roles that I'm in, even in the class that we had uh, together uh, last last fall. And, you know, my daughter is 15, sophomore in high school. Um, but this was definitely the election that she paid the most attention to. And I mean, I, the one thing that I think people really need to know uh, when it comes to you know, all of these values and principles and, and all of these other things that the Republican Party used to just sort of give lip service to, and I think really believed in, like family values and, you know, uh, you know, being good parents and raising your kids right, right. and everything else. That's important to all of us that uh, regardless of who we, you know, vote for, it's important to us as well. And so my daughter really has been paying attention to um, politics within the last year, and she knows I'm a professor of political science. She's always known that, um, but she's definitely been asking me a lot of questions uh, regarding a lot of different things. She saw the, you know, what's been happening over the last couple of years. And unlike me, I grew up in a school uh, that was, you know, 99% white, probably. Um, it, it became a little bit more diverse as I got a little bit older uh, into high school, but. You know, my daughter has always like she's it's it's been kind of just second nature to her to have a diverse group of friends um, ever since we've been here in Salt Lake to the point where I would talk about diversity as being one of the virtues of the school that she went to before she went to a judge and now judge is, is pretty uh, diverse as well. And she didn't even know what the word diversity meant. Huh. I mean, that, that because, again, it was just like natural to her. So those are the kinds of things in which. Um, you know, she's entering into this kind of uh, issue of, of the, the Trump era with, and then it's just become incredibly pronounced with the events over the last year. And then, you know, she's also somebody that has a strong sense of justice and, and, and she doesn't understand. And I think there's a lot of kids that are, aren't even her age. I mean, my son's this way as well. that want to know why people get to be really belligerent um, you know, really over the top, sometimes violent and get away with it. And others don't, and others who aren't that way don't. Yeah. Um, and in fact, get, um, get, you know, accosted in ways that are problematic. So, um, so, you know, fast forward to this past Wednesday, knowing that the shit was probably going to hit the fan anyway, right. Leading up to, uh, the Capitol protests in the U S Capitol in DC. Yeah. Big surprise. I know. And, um, you know, and my, my daughter got out of school. She was heading to an outdoor mall. I said, make sure you wear your mask, do everything that we have to do in a pandemic. And I said, things are feel like they're going to get even you know, more heated. This before, like any of the storming of uh, the, the D.C. Capitol had happened. Um, I said, just if you see any of these Trump caravans that have been driving around because she had seen them about a month ago and had hollered at them and oh geez uh, no. I, and I didn't find out about this until afterwards and she said well they've kind of turned around and everything so then we ran into a store and i said look you're right i mean you sh you know these people uh are are trying to provoke and they shouldn't get to but they just are and so you know i and in the united states i mean this is one of the things i have to explain to my friends that don't live in the United States, people carry guns around. They're they're looking for reasons to shoot guns. They're they're looking for for you know reasons to provoke. And as a dad, I just kind of, <laughs> you know, you want your kids to be safe. You also want them to stand up for their principles, but you want them to be safe first and foremost. Um, 
so that was that was the context in which I was just telling her just don't provoke them they're at the point now where I think they realize they've lost uh, and they will lose and um, this kind of rage is one of these things that is, is historically embedded in, in, in the U.S. political historical DNA uh, that yeah. just, people take to violence instead of democracy. And, and that's what's happening. That's what happened Wednesday. I think it's going to continue to happen. I just didn't want my daughter caught up in that. And yeah. So that's where I was going from as a dad. Well, and thanks for sharing that. I mean, that's kind of, it's tender, but in like a really sad way. <laughs> it's like, you know, it you is, have. I, I, sh- I shouldn't have to do this. Yeah, and, and exactly. Getting back to the like the the family values and that kind of stuff. It's like you know, I, some of what I want is just an everyday existence, just like anybody else here. And I shouldn't have to explain to my daughter that she has to be careful and be on pins and needles around people that yeah. are aggressive and are violent and everything else. I shouldn't have to do that. And this is this is my role as a dad. It's not my role as some like you know, far lefty socialist academic or whatever this, you know, cartoonishly simplistic character is. Which you're not, is. by the way. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm yeah. Not. Um, but but that's one of the things that I, I don't know if the Republican Party has fully come to grips with is that this is this is screwing up our shit as parents, like as, yeah. as people that are trying to raise their kids. Um, it, it's impacting us. And there is such a thing as moral decay happening in a decadent society and all the things that the neoconservatives and the, the white evangelicals in the 1990s yeah. were talking about and, and accusing my generation of putting into peril, their latching on to power is now leading to the point where, you know, all of those things are actually happening. So, and, and we haven't even got started about, you know, how this has impacted the fueling of the pandemic and the the disintegration of of our political and health and social and you know um, yeah. all kinds of institutions here uh, that we have. So I mean, there's so many ways I want to take this with you. Like, uh, um, but before we even like get running, you you mentioned the word neoconservative. I I don't know if everybody listening uh, is gonna know what a neoconservative is. To me, a neoconservative is kind of like Dick Cheney. It's kind of like sometimes George W. Bush. Could you kind of just, in a nutshell, explain what that is, and then I'll have a follow-up question for you. So, I mean, philosophically, conservatism is something that you know, to kind of reduce it to a really sort of uh, sim- kind of brief uh, synopsis. You know, the, the philosophical tradition of conservatism, depending on where you're looking at it, is has been around in you know political philosophy for a long period of time, and within the political fabric of the United States, philosophically conservative people are ones that look at traditions and the historical sort of resilience of particular traditions and institutions as having their own good for a society, right? Um, the neoconservatives come along in the 1990s and they say that's not enough to keep society going you have to actually go out and actively promote those principles and those institutions like abroad abroad like away from the u.s yes uh, uh, yes absolutely so that they are worth fighting for they're even worth dying for and so having a more activist and i would say evangelical in the small e sense uh understanding (laughs) of promoting u.s principles abroad so that they don't decay at home and so that you have something greater than yourself to um to to invest in when it comes to U.S. principles, so that you can increase their community value, not just here in the United States but abroad. And so, the neoconservatives think that 
U.S. principles are universal principles. These notions of liberty, of, of, of community, of um, virtues, of whatever. But in order for those to last, for those to be resilient, you can't just protect them. You actually have to promote them uh, as well. And there's a strong moral basis to that uh, in the 1990s when kind of the second generation of neoconservatives come along. The first generation is usually considered to be the 1970s, mm. late 60s and 1970s. And they kind of came out of the Democratic Party. Uh, they sort of broke with other parts of the Democratic Party after the Vietnam. Oh, really? Oh. And yeah, they, I mean, there, there's a progressive logic to neoconservatism because the idea is um, it's not just enough to just conserve. You have to progress uh, in order to protect uh, what you have at home. And so there's definitely a progressive logic that, that's there. And there's definitely a moral sort of moralistic uh, basis for it in the 1990s. Now, a lot of us Gen Xers... <laughs> knew that they were kind of full of shit, that they were like saying this on <laughs> one hand, but not necessarily practicing on yeah. the other. Yeah. And yet it's, you know, there were other Gen Xers that, that got caught up in that uh, and, and found that to be very attractive because it's like, well, yeah, you know. Yeah, um, it's kind of like fast planes. Yeah. It's like fast planes, like American yeah, military absolutely. America. And especially after after 9-11, that becomes a very attractive ideology for a lot of Americans as a way to kind of, protect the United States by also promoting the U.S. Uh, the U.S. vision uh, elsewhere. So how do you go from that to what we're seeing right now? I mean, because, you know, you you posted the picture on your Twitter feed of, of what was happening in Salt Lake City. Everybody already knows what's happening at the Capitol. It's a bunch of dudes in, like, camo, and, like, they're LARPing as, like, military figures. One dude was wearing, like, a Viking hat and, like... You know, um, and I feel like everybody else, I feel very pissed, like keeping it narrow, I guess, for a sec. How do we get to this point? You know, I hear the news media saying like the Black Lives Matter protesters actually kind of weakened the Capitol for police force so that this is why they basically blamed the Black Lives Matter protests for for this failure. Like, give us your perspective on like. How do we get to this point? Is it both sides? Is it more one side? Is it whatever? I mean, I look at it as two things, uh, sort of cultural and institutional. I think institutionally, the United States electoral system is a center-right system for a center-left, at minimum, maybe left-left, uh, maximum um, polity. I mean, the, the, it, it, the, the electoral system no longer represents... The, the, the democratic community of the United States. Wow. And, and that increasing tension is something that has enabled the lack of accountability uh, for one party and contained and constrained another party. And then at this point where the sort of demographic bulge is overwhelming, even the electoral system in favor of the Democrats, you're seeing the types of things like the limiting and voter su suppression that you're seeing in some states to limit individuals from voting because the Republican Party has never really had to reform itself because the electoral system has been in, the, in its favor for so long. And yeah. now they're at the point where they need to reform and they don't want to. Yeah. Um, and so I think institutionally there's that. And then I think culturally, you know, some of it, there is agency here. It's not just structure and institutions. There's agency here. And the fact that, you know, the neoconservatives for a long time talked about accountability and talked about the 
universalism of U.S. principles and everything else, and then did nothing to deliver that in the 2000s and the 2010s, both when it came to um, you know, principles when it came to, to rights that were fueling U.S. foreign policy and that it just absolutely collapsed uh, in, the, in the failures of the, of the war, war on terror, uh, both theaters, but especially the Iraq war. Um, and then on the other hand, you had, in my view, um, I, I think, uh, you know, a failure of, a couple of failures of the economic, the universal economic sort of uh, principles that have fueled neoconservatism connected to the uh, capitalist system. And it just completely collapsed uh, in the global financial crisis. Yeah, and then it's shown its you know uh, weakness yet again in in light of this pandemic. Um, that's generated a lot of just cynicism and burn it down and let's just rage. Uh, and that that's a perfect sort of environment, um, this morally injurious environment uh, where the United States just can't seem to win anymore for someone like Trump. Uh, to enter the scene and, and and to enter the scene in a way that again you know is able to take advantage of the electoral system even at the expense of the ma majority uh, of american voters uh in 2016. Um, and so i think that's how you get to that point and then if you're at a point where nothing matters that it's nihilism um that you know there's somebody that's always going to be blamed uh, somebody else that's always going to be blamed that can be blamed for our situation then you have the the kind of the the, the hedonistic decadent um violent lashing out that we saw on wednesday but we've been seeing it off and on uh for a while yeah yeah uh that was really uh that was really clear and i think to add to that something that you said before we even got on the call was that there's an obvious, obvious discrepancy between the the federal and militarized response to the Black Lives Matter protests and to these. And to kind of tie that to what you just said, it sounded like you were just saying there um, that, you know, there's these economic problems. There's these social and cultural problems. And, you know, the culture, like the institutions don't represent the culture, which is leaning more left. So my question, though, is these were not lefties. I mean, as opposed to the conspiracy theorists who are saying the people broke in were antifa right have you you've heard about that which to me kind of rings of like uh oh it was actually the socialists who burned down the reichstag you know right. sort of thing um but you know i guess my question for you is i totally agree with what you just said but why is it then that these are the people like the people who should be you know less affected by these things who are staying in $8,000 a night hotels and flying in from all over the country, why are they the ones who are expressing this anger rather than, you know, the other side as much? Because there, there has been a hierarchy that they have been able to exploit and be on top of. And it can be white supremacist, but it's a little bit, it's, it's broader than that, that is in danger. And they know it's in danger. And they know that they can no longer keep, you know, pushing the, the increasingly demographic and just numerical disadvantage that, that, that they're in, they can no longer keep that contained. So it's and not so, just whiteness. What's the, what are the other aspects of that? 
hierarchy? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think generationally, um, educationally, right? I mean, the, the, it's not just uh, uh, racial or ethnic gaps that are emerging. It is education gaps that are emerging. It's, it's, it's people like me that tell our kids, you've got to go and get a college education because even in a global recession, you're still going to have a damn better job, chance of getting a job. Uh, than if you don't, you know, and right. so that gap, and they're and they're also sort of, you know, you know, in in this uh, situation where, um, you know, that that's going to put the, I mean, you know, to think, this is one thing I wish that the Republican Party right now would come to grips with, and it's a little bit different because we're in Utah because the Republican Party is a, is a little bit more moderate, isn't necessarily the right word, but yeah. still one that, that tries to uphold, I think, some of these visions and does to some degree practice what it preaches, um, as as exemplified by Senator Romney this this week and yeah. before this mm-hmm. week, right? But yeah, um, but the one thing I do want to get across to to, um, to to the Republican Party is. These kids that are asking questions about why is it that Black Lives uh, Matter um, is so controversial? It shouldn't be. It should just be like a matter of fact. Or, um, you know, why is it that you're intentionally traumatizing children at the border and ripping them from their parents? Yeah. Um, and they're not getting good answers. Like that. That those questions aren't just going to go away. And if right, you know, if the Republican Party isn't responsive to that. Um, then they're going to gravitate towards the Democratic Party, and 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 that can be something in terms of performative experience that stays with them for a long period of time. So those are the things that I think, at a, at the just at the surface level, I think the Republican Party, or at least some of these people that have identified with the Republican Party since Trump came in, they know, and. And yet, it's been embedded in their DNA to not accept accountability. Yeah. Because accountability shows weakness. Yeah. Right. Apologies is is a form of weakness that they just can't get out of um, this sort of cycle. And so I think that's another factor that's leading to this. And that's also a factor why um, you have individuals doing that. And then the other, I think, argument, and you're somebody that really puts sort of class-based, economic-based arguments into our conversations in in the class, and I think also into this podcast, I think a late stage capitalism aspect of our democracy is such that one of the things that enabled this, um, that, you know, I think maybe some of these senators uh, that are in the Republican Party realized this week was they joined as a matter of convenience into the Trump coalition so that they yeah. could get their tax cuts, they could get their deregulation, they could get as much smash and grab, you know, um, extract as much as you can wealth right now while they could. And this is what um, this is what the result is. It almost so. feels like a, a a tacit recognition of oh shit! It's uh, yes. everyone's leaving us, and so just get what you can while you can. You know, yes. it feels yeah. like this almost recognition of like, wow, no one's with us. And you know, uh, to build on what you just said for a sec, one of the things that I really liked about your class is that you you gave us tools to like explore um these philosophy these really complex philosophies like constructivism right and one thing i liked about your idea of constructivism is that you know the way we rhetorically frame things kind of shapes our reality to some extent right and what bothers me so much is that mitt romney like good for him right he got up he did his thing you know he's he 
I almost wish that he would have called out Josh Hawley by name. I so <laughs> wish that he did. You know, but he's, you know, everyone knew what was going on. He had those death eyes. If you look yeah, at the, he had the stare. I saw a tweet that was like, oh, that look you give when uh, a Missourian try, or like a Mormon gives when a Missourian tries to incite a riot. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, just to get back to it, it's like, yeah, Mitt Romney did his thing. But guess what? Burgess Owens, you know, Chris Stewart, these other Utah Republicans also like state legislators that kind of just threw logs on the fire you know they're all acting like oh no like these people actually acted on the stuff that i've been feeding them for like years you know it, it makes me so angry you know to hear the news media then go around and say no it's both sides when it's like it almost sounded like you were implying this earlier tell me if you're wrong when you said or if i'm wrong that you said like one party's constrained, one party isn't? Or what were you saying there? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it's 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 electoral system that's done that. And so I think the only way you get out of that is through some kind of electoral form, reform. I mean, um, the Republican Party can dominate and or at least throw gears into the, uh, excuse me, throw sand into the gears so long as the Senate is the Senate. I mean, and the Senate has the powers that it has. And so long as you only have 50 states that are disproportionately favorable to the Republican Party. Yeah. And the Republican Party isn't going to change that. And and it's all, and, and that only incentivizes more extremism in the Republican Party, because then the only effective competitive elections that they have are the primaries. Yeah. And it's been this way for a while, but I think it's it's most pronounced now. And again, that's what I'm talking about in terms of it. it increasingly, you have an increasingly large, um, you know, group of Americans who are not represented and funneled uh, through that. And that's not that's even before we get to how gerrymandered uh, the House of, of Representatives is. But even that is at least a little bit more representative than uh, the Senate. Yeah. And, and the problem is that you try to talk to people about institutional reform and they act like the status quo has some kind of sacred saint, yeah you know, it's uh, sacred it's founding it's fathers the were inspired by god to do every single thing that's existing Which is if, if you, you don't touch if, it if you look into how some of these things happen it's a lot more contingent and idiosyncratic than it was sort of coming down from up high and some like sort of um you know deified wisdom yeah that generated uh the framework that we have so and we've changed our institutions a lot and we can do it again i mean and i don't want to keep rambling about this topic i want to also ask you just about a few other things because i know you have to go relatively soon is that um do you think that um donald trump should be impeached and also do you think that there should be a certain level of accountability for people like senators cruz and hawley who we're trying to object to Biden's election certification. Like, and if so, what do you think that should be? Yes and yes. Um, accountability sucks if you're on the receiving end of it, but it is a foundational principle of any kind of society, but especially a democratic society. Inciting a riot is serious. There are five people that are dead because of that, one of which is, you know, a, 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 one of whom was a Capitol policeman. Um, and so Trump should be impeached, and I think you need to remove him uh, as an example uh, for for future individuals. And and I'm and that's something that Gen X connects with a lot because we've seen a lot of people not get held accountable. Yeah. 
and seen moral hazard happen again and again and again. And, and the global financial crisis, the war on terror, the, the torture regimes of the Bush administration, all of these people got to walk because we just had to move forward and we need to unify. But I think people need to understand that there's a broader context now that makes this even more urgent. Um, and so, you know, I think asking not just a, a, a middle-aged, comfortable, relatively comfortable white dude like me that question, um, but asking people of color that question and how yeah. they viewed the last couple of days. We talked about this before we started recording, right? Um, you know, of how those protesters were treated. Honestly, and how yeah. Trump is still treated. The fact that, that he still has a job, right? Um, after inciting a riot, and, all, and a lot of these people haven't been, um, you know, were, were handled with, with kid gloves at, at worst um, during the, the Capitol protests and, and doing everything that they did. So accountability is important. It's got to start at the top. And so that's why I think he should be impeached and he should be removed. And then with Cruz and Holly, absolutely. I, I think that there, um, you know, there are calls by Democrats to have them resign. I don't think they're going to do that because all they care about is power. Right. They don't think they care about principles. These, these two are. I don't think they're as bright as everyone always says they are in terms of constitutional scholars and Ivy League people and everything else. Because not everybody that gets into Ivy League institutions or comes out of them is as smart as we might think. Or they um, think they are. Yeah. Right. Um, but they're definitely smart enough to know that, you know, they screwed up. Um, but they're also not going to give up power willingly. And so I think the, the uh, Senate should use every bit of uh, power that it has to, um, to isolate them. Yeah. Uh, and, and not make people forget this uh, as well. Yeah. No, thanks for that. And also, thanks for uh, recognizing like where we stand. Because you're right. Like you and I, we're two white guys, you know, and we're and we're just these academic guys like commenting on things. But you know, uh, you know, there's people of color who like I I want to I I frankly want to interview uh, them also. But I I feel like um, the next question though kind of speaks more to your expertise and why I brought you on, which is more the foreign policy aspect of it, right? which is that um, you, one thing that you talk about in one of your articles is you kind of mentioned it, moral injury, right? Uh, could you give us a little small version of, of that? Yeah, so moral injury is a term that comes out of uh, psychology to refer to something like PTSD, but not PTSD. Um, it, it's something that... Um, uh, can happen, but you can't quite pinpoint the exact moment or aspect that relates to a morally injurious uh, sense uh, or, or sensibility that people have over something that they regret over the past because it calls into question who they are. And in my sort of framework, it's ontological in insecurity is what results from moral injury. But Yelena Subodich and I did a, a, an article where we applied this to the United States. And we said the United States doesn't know how to react to the fact that it's always seen itself as a country that's good, right? Yeah. Um, and a country that wins. And if it doesn't win, then what does that say about how good it is and vice versa? Um, and because the United States didn't win uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, this has generated a sense of ontological insecurity that has then been manipulated and mobilized by Trump and other populist leaders uh, in the United States. And this isn't the only period of time that the United States has experienced this. We talked about the Vietnam War as being another example yeah. of a morally injurious event. 
Um, and so that could be experienced at a community level, but it can also be experienced at an individual level as well. And so the United States has always connected with not only winning, but winning as the status as a hegemon. Uh, and I think that's important for the moment that we're in right now, because, you know, um, I mean, one thing that, and you might have even seen it in our, our U.S. foreign policy class, the one thing that I see every single time I teach that class is that people are okay discussing with other fellow U.S. Americans in a class like that uh, about the ins and outs, the pros and cons of U.S. foreign policy and the United States as a country in international politics. But they get really sensitive and maybe this is connected to American exceptionalism or the narcissism of the United States or whatever. They get really sensitive when they they see other countries commenting on the United States, what's good and bad about the United States, because we shouldn't have to listen to them. Um, but what other countries think about the United States is important. It always has been. And it's imp been important in terms of the the paybacks of U.S. foreign policy in the future. I mean, Britain was about ready to intervene into the United States Civil War, at the very least recognizing the Confederacy as a nation state, which would have which would have generated huge implications yeah. for whether the Union would have won or not. And then Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, my first article, my first sole author article was on this. And once he did that, it gave Britain a little bit of pause. And, and Britain had every other reason to want to see the United States separated into these two nation states because the United States was a rival power. But then because he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, the Brits felt a little bit uncomfortable about recognizing the Confederacy because it was a slave state. Britain, <laughs> even, though, yeah. even though it had its own issues with colonialism, also had some problematic issues regarding its views of slavery. It didn't want to you know, uh, recognize a, a, a slaveholding state. So um, why was that important? Well, that was important not just in terms of the resolution of the American Civil War. That was important at the end of the 19th century because the United States got to free ride off Britain as a hegemon and not have to really worry about naval engagements with would-be adversaries and got to build up um, you know, its economy through commerce and maritime uh, trading uh, by free riding off that British naval power. And so what other countries think about the United States, not just in terms of strategic calculations, but moral calculations is important. And for right now, that's also important. And I don't think that I don't think that people are thinking about that enough because again, there's this reflex to not really care about what other countries think about the United States, especially when it comes to our own internal politics. But those are also the same people that really do care whether the United States is a hegemon or not. Yeah. It hurts their fifis if the United States is a client. <laughs> right? So yeah. I mean, you can't have one and not the other. I mean, you, right. you, you know, hegemon by definition is in a international relational realm um, only calculable vis-a-vis -vis your status uh, versus other countries. Yeah. And if other countries don't view you as a hegemon, unless you want to be in the island of make-believe, you have to actually consider that in terms of whether you really are a hegemon or not. Do you think that this problem, like what happened in the Capitol two days ago, um, do you think that that's almost a death knell for U.S. hegemony? Because, I, I, you know, the Prime Minister of Zimbabwe and all these other people suddenly, like even Emmanuel Macron and all these allies and people we've criticized suddenly came out and said, wow, we hope that the U.S. gets it together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some of them being cynical about that and, and some aren't. But, you know, like I was mentioning to you before, uh, before we started uh, recording, I think, there, I think we need to evaluate it on two levels. One at the level of, of other national societies and then uh, a, a, 
secondly, but more importantly than, but first just at the level of what we're seeing in terms of the official government uh, reactions to all of this, right? right? And so looking at how the leaders are reacting to it. And I actually think the societies are a little bit more important because um, when it comes to the governments, it depends on which government you're looking at. I think there are some governments that are just like, oh my gosh, it's doing irreparable damage to the United States. We don't love the United States, but we'd rather have the United States as you know the major great power, if not necessarily the hegemon, than China or Russia. I think a lot of European countries are at that realm, and they don't know where it's going to go. Um, and then there are others like Iran, like Russia, that are laughing about this, right? Um, and and I think rightfully so. I mean, Russia is just totally like taking this, you know, to another level. They're saying, oh well, you know, maybe we should show up and hand out. You know, um, food and drinks to your protesters, uh, just like Ukraine oh. uh, yeah. in 2014, um, and and that's true. I mean, that did happen uh, with some U.S. representatives showing up and supporting the protesters that were in favor of uh, the anti-Russian or pro-Western uh, Ukrainian uh, movement there. And so, um, so that's important. But at the societal level, and this was what I was telling you about, I'm getting a lot of emails. Um, from my friends abroad that don't really understand, um, or they do, but they it, they find the United States still to be a puzzle. Um, and they're wondering what's happening. And I think that group of people in national societies, like people at the everyday level, um, don't necessarily want to see the United States completely collapse upon itself. They want to see certain parts of, of the political movements in the United States to collapse upon itself. But they also see and this is, and you saw this in the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement. Those protests didn't just happen last summer in the United States. They happened all across the world. That's true. Overwhelmingly. Yeah. <laughs> because people know, first off, that the United States has always had an issue over race. That, that, that race issue is not just contained to the United States, but they do know that there are particular factors that are fueling the U.S. Uh, issues over race and the violence and oppression that have, that have um, marked it. But they also know that there are parts of the United States that um, have not been represented by their government. Uh, and, 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 you know, pick whatever data point you want to look at, whether it's the Black Lives Matter protests of this last summer, uh, Barack Obama's uh, two administrations and voting for him uh, after Bush, but before uh, Trump. And so I think that there is a hopeful sense um, that folks in the United States will get it together, even yeah. if their institutions are starting to fall apart. Um, and, and there, there is a, a, a concern. And then there's just, you know, a lot of folks that have become friends with a lot of us U.S. Americans, um, especially academics, but not just. I mean, college students as well are, are, um, are, are, are Mormon uh, friends and colleagues uh, that are college students that have already been on their missions abroad. I mean, you know, a global religion like that is something that puts Americans into contact with lots of people elsewhere, yeah. creating all kinds of connections and friendships. And they want us to, to be in a good place as well. They want our political community to be in a good place. And yeah. so I think that's maybe where, um, where some people think, it isn't the death knell yet because the Bush years weren't the death knell yet. Um, the, the Trump years hopefully are not the death knell yet. And, and maybe, you know, this, this society of the United States will, will be able to, to push through and, and improve things a little bit. I hope so. And, uh, you know, it's a topic for another time going back to Mormonism. Like there was a guy LARPing as Captain Moroni uh, from the Book of Mormon uh, yes. over there. 
my senator, our senator Mike Lee, you know, called Trump Captain Moroni, this hero from our book of scripture, you know, and uh, you know the church leaders by not saying anything against it have basically said something, you know, and that's obviously a topic for a different time. But I agree with you that it's everywhere. Um, I don't want to keep too keep you too much longer because you said like around now that you'd have to finish. Just one more question. Sure. Um, you know, what can we do? Do you think like we're just we're just individuals? You know, uh, it's a pandemic, and so we feel even more contained and you know restricted yeah. as well, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's probably groups we can support financially and just with ourselves, like like you said, Black Lives Matter, and but um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think we underestimate the the power potential of protest uh and and p and and i don't call it peaceful i call it nonviolent. uh for the reasons i mentioned in in the fall because um uh, protest is never peaceful uh it's 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 nonviolent and it's resistive and it's it, it's courageous and it is active yeah um but those black lives matter protests this summer the the wide the widespread scale of them I think we still are coming to grips with now. I, I mean, in my lifetime, I've never seen that. The, the uh, anti-war movement in the early 2000s against the Iraq war was strong, but it was never like this. Um, the Obama phenomenon was never like this. I mean, he would show up and there were lots of people that would show up and listen to him speak, but this felt like something different. And so I think that's the one thing to keep in mind is that so long as the institutions stay the same, and they keep getting out of whack with the the just numerical um, and 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 uh, generational bulge that is increasing in terms of wanting something but not having it delivered. Yeah. Uh, at the institutional level, um, you're going to just keep seeing people protesting in the streets. And your generation, I don't mean to idealize it at all, um, but Gen Z doesn't even think about it as any other way. They just went out into the streets and supported. Uh, uh, the, these protests because they, again, it was second nature to them that black lives should matter and they weren't going to put up with this shit anymore. Yeah. And so I think that we underestimate the power potential of that and the recessed power of it right now um, shouldn't be taken for granted because that can always uh, manifest itself. It could be latent for a little while, but it can manifest itself at a moment's notice. So that's why even, I mean, even if they would have overthrown uh, the election on Wednesday, however they legally justify it, whatever those protests look like, you know, in terms of violence, numerically, they weren't that large. No, that's true. The reaction would have been overwhelming. That's and true. I, and I, I think that we, I think that we just, and, and, and the old excuses that, that used to get thrown out when it came to protests and trying to delegitimize them, they don't work anymore. And you can, and you can't say that you, you, you know, um, need to respect law and order when, uh, you know, as an opposition to these protests, to Black Lives Matter protests, when it's obvious you don't care about law exactly. or order after Wednesday. Yep. Right? Uh-huh. It's on full <laughs> again, display. Again, you know, getting back to some of the tweets I had today, you don't get to say that you're the party of family values when, you know, some of the things that have happened over the last four years, you don't get to say you're the party of personal, personal responsibility when you don't even care about accountability for uh, your own party. I mean, those kinds of things, I think, are also like kind of the, you know, the protests and the and the, the political activism that's there and was on display and the power of that this summer 
is sort of the positive aspect of it. I think the negative, um, but still in sort of the favor of mo moving forward um, aspect is, is the damage that has been done is evidence yeah. uh, and can be pointed to uh, to be able to, to empty some of these kind of rhetorical arguments that, that always get pulled out to try to delegitimize political protest and mobilization. I love that. Um, and, uh, you know, a last thing that I'll say and close with is going back to what you said earlier, that it, it just really struck me. It's like two things, like we're just individuals, number one. And then number two, we also inhabit a, a, the top of that hierarchy. And I feel like some of the best people who, uh, who are already organizing are the people who like are, are black people and are people who are at the bottom of that. And, uh, you know, they're trying to get their voices out and they're doing a good job of it. And I think that like, it sounds like in conjunction with what you're saying, we can join those movements and we could try to help magnify that, you know? A absolutely. And, and people in positions of power and privilege need to use that to, 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 you know, to overturn, uh, the the systems of oppression that that you see right now. And additionally, I mean, one thing that I consider to be part of my vocation is why I don't just call it a job. I call it a vocation as a professor, as a department chair, whatever. Um, is you know having these kinds of discussions in a classroom. I mean, there's a reason that there is a an education gap when it comes to those that f find everything that has happened over the last four years, but especially over the last year, abhorrent. On the one hand. And those that are just totally okay with it or even are getting a thrill out of it on the other. And so, you know, then it's like, well, am I trying to turn a bunch of students into Democrats? No, I'm not. But do I want them to see what's happening and say that's problematic from a democratic civic community level? You're damn right I do. Heck yeah. And they already know it, but they don't necessarily have the vernacular or the historical knowledge or the approach knowledge to be able to grapple with this. But after they're done taking a class with me, they can. And I, it's like I said, I don't care who they vote for, but I definitely want them to see that this isn't the way that it always has to be. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of the part of the way in which, you know, I can use my privileged position or whatever to affect some kind of long-term change as well. Thanks for coming on. And I, I never know whether to call you Brent or Dr. Steele. Or... Just call me Brent, man. It <laughs> Seriously, yeah. No exalted terms anymore. You um, know, some other time when times aren't so crazy and hopefully more progress has been made, we'll talk about the Bears and my Saints. <laughs> they're in the playoffs, which is fine by <laughs> me. They're going to get destroyed on Sunday. Um, but I don't care. I, I get to walk my dog. I get to listen to the Bears. Whether they lose or, or win, I'll have a beer. I'll sort of reflect on the year. Yeah. Um, hey, in a pandemic, I didn't think the NFL would get through this year. They almost didn't. They still may not, but um, but it's been a nice outlet, a nice escape uh, from, from all of this. So yeah. yeah, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Sounds good, man. Well, hang in there. Just be well and stay sane, I guess. All right. All right, buddy. Thanks so much. Take care of yourself. Right? Hey, thanks. You too. Cheers. Later.